From Dame Cacao, I'm Max Gandy, and this is Chocolate on the Road, the show where we explore hot topics surrounding cacao and chocolate cultures around the world. So let's hit the road. Hey, chocolate lovers. This week just happens to be the second week in a row with no new episode of Chocolate on the Road. No worries. We'll be back next week with an all new episode. But in lieu of that new episode, this week I bring to you the full length interview with David Castellan, co-founder of Soma Chocolate Maker in Toronto, Canada. David and I dive into a number of topics, including the landscape of chocolate making back in 2003, from sourcing equipment to designing packaging and opening up their very own factory. Enjoy! How did you get into chocolate? Uh, (laughs) Well, you're starting at the beginning. Uh, Well, I was a pastry chef for a long time. That's just what I did as a career for about 20 years. And um, and then we wanted to start something together. And we found a little space in the new district in Toronto called the Distillery District. They were renovating it. It was a small place with about 600 square feet. And we thought it was a bit too small to do really a pastry shop. So we decided to concentrate on chocolate. So we were going to make, you know, chocolate truffles and that kind of thing. But I had taken a course in California, summer of 2001, called uh, Richardson Researches. And this was a course where we made chocolate from, from the bean. So this was a, a course where companies like Mars and Hershey's would send their people to this course to learn about chocolate making because I guess they didn't want to teach them themselves. I don't know why. So it was a cool little class. Uh, uh, it was only about a week long, but we roasted beans. We, well, we made chocolate basically. We did all the steps in making chocolate. And also went a bit farther than that, uh, analyzing cocoa butter and the whole day on cocoa butter and cocoa fats and cocoa butter replacers and all this stuff. It was pretty technical, but I found it really cool and pretty interesting. So when we got back and we were doing our chocolate shop, we kind of spent part of our budget for equipment on what we thought we were going to make for interest sake, just make like one or two kilos at a time. So we had devised this method and in the end, like the, the equipment we chose to do that didn't really work. But soon after, I found a McIntyre refiner, which is a 45 kilo universal mill. And then we bought a coffee uh, roaster, which we modified. So, yeah, I mean, we started in 2003, but we were up and running very soon after. And your mom also owned a bakery? Yeah, my mom had a bakery and um, that was my first job. And that kind of points you in the direction sometimes that of your life without you knowing it you know i love cooking cooking and baking so i grew up doing that and uh, i just kept doing that and working at different restaurants and pastry shops and stuff so uh, i was pretty immersed in the restaurant business and cynthia took a different path she was more design focused and uh, she had took an architecture degree and um, had more of a design background so when you were a kid and and into adulthood did you have imported Italian chocolates, or did you eat more of the typical Canadian mass market chocolate? Oh, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, well, where, where we grew up, um, I grew up in a, a small town in northern Canada, I guess, called Sudbury. And there was a lot of Italian immigrants from northern Italy, I guess. And 
we had the very typical Italian products. Like at Easter, you'd get, you know, the huge egg and um, a lot of Kinder type products. And um, at Christmas, a lot of nougat, torone. But of course, you're in Canada, you still eat like O'Henry bars. Or maybe you don't know these bars or whatever, but, uh, you know, there's specific chocolate bars that are Canadian that, that don't even really get made in uh, in the U.S. It's not the same market. So, you know, you, you just get exposed to what you get exposed to, I guess. Uh, but for sure, like, um, I did have some chocolate experiences in Italy when we, we would visit. I remember one time I ordered hot chocolate and I must have been about 10 in Italy. And um, they brought me something which I only recognize now really must have been like like a cup full of cocoa liquor or something. There was no sugar in it. It was completely super intense and uh, completely not appropriate to give a young child. <laughs> and um, I do remember that uh, pretty distinctly thinking, well, like it's, it's crazy intense, but I, I really love this. What was your concept of like, premium chocolate before you got into the, the business yourself did you were well, there nicer curvatures that you would have thought of yeah i mean the, this back then whichever restaurant or pastry shop you worked at you know when you're a young pastry chef you don't have any say on what they buy so you kind of go with what they they use you know kind of a, a very very typical in canada at least calibo chocolate that's what basically everyone used when I worked at better places, they would start, you know, you get into Valrona. But around, I worked in a restaurant in around 89. And that's when Manjari came out, I think. Valrona Manjari. Those guys, the Valrona guys came and it was a kind of a high-end restaurant. So they came and tried to get us to use this Manjari and started to explain single origin chocolates. This was 1989. So this was really like the beginning of making chocolate just from one origin. So we met uh, one of the Balrona guys, Frederick Bow. He's a pretty famous pastry chef. And I got, like, it was pretty easy to get hooked on the difference between Manjari, which was, they, they say the beans are from the Indian Ocean, but it was basically Madagascar. Like everyone was, you know, definitely noticed how different it was from other chocolate, that really like red, fruity character. And we use that in desserts, you know, you start to use that for different desserts. And it became a little bit more nuanced and, uh, you know, up until that point is chocolate was just chocolate. The percentage was really like low, 50 to 60 percent. That's what you'd use. You make chocolate mousse or whatever. Uh, but after Manjari came out, things got a little bit more sophisticated. And I mean, at first it was just pastry chefs, but you could kind of pinpoint that's where it started to get a little bit more interesting for chocolate uh, as far as enjoying the actual character of, of origin and stuff like that. Classifying chocolate is more than one flavor. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, people forget that now. Like, it's pretty typical. Like, you know, even people who are not that into chocolate know about origins and stuff, uh, and you take it for granted. But, uh, you know, in 1989, <laughs> uh, no one knew about that stuff. No one knew where it was made. No one knew anything about chocolate. Over the course of over a decade, what got you to the point of wanting to go take that course on chocolate making from the bean? Oh, um, well, actually, I had no idea that's what we were going to learn. What I was really after was I wanted to learn how to do chocolate panning. So that was the only course I could find where they would teach you how to do chocolate panning because I was really intrigued by um, Enrique Rivera. He's a Spanish or a Catalan um, 
case, uh, I guess Chocolatier at the time. I mean, he's still around. He's, he's pretty awesome. I just wanted to do like, we wanted to start a business doing just pan chocolate. But in the course of that uh, panning, we learned panning, but we also learned how to make chocolate from the bean, which I didn't expect to learn, but which kind of pointed us in a different direction. And you worked with chocolate from a lot of different, much larger companies in the decade or so prior. Did you ever go and visit any of their factories or anything? No, like that, uh, that wasn't really a thing that was offered. <laughs> um, these days, Valrana will, will, if they find a good pastry chef or a pastry chef using their chocolate, they invite them over to France. But I never got, got those invites in the 80s. <laughs> it wasn't the way they, they connected to their user base, I guess. Now, since then, we've been on quite a few factory tours, and uh, they're always fascinating. What we're doing now with our new factory is that uh, we're going to show all the processes and invite people in to get the feel of how, how we do things. Yeah, I mean, you two are some of the earliest small batch or micro batch chocolate makers i mean in the world at least to an extent that you were producing enough to be able to sell it how Mm. how did you develop your vocabulary around like describing yourself and what you do to other people and how has that changed oh that's a good question because uh in the beginning that was kind of a big conversation among chocolate makers. I guess the first batch of like bean to bar makers, I don't think we called it bean to bar even back then, but around 2005, which would be like Rogue, Patrick, Lonohana, those, those guys were making chocolate back then. But the big issue was trying to explain to people what the difference between someone who melts down chocolate and makes truffles and someone who makes chocolate. And uh, we always... We kind of just went the easy route. We always called ourselves chocolate maker, Soma chocolate maker, kind of how um, Scharfenberger chocolate maker, we kind of got it from that. I mean, it's it just it's kind of a simple explanation and it works, but it doesn't always translate to people. Uh, at the time, people really didn't know that you could make chocolate from the bean. Um, they just kind of thought, you know, that you would just buy stuff and melt it, or I don't know what they thought, but... <laughs> Uh, we've come a long way. Some somehow the name Bean to Bar kind of s- stuck. Um, it's kind of a silly name, but that's what everyone has clung on to. And now, uh, you know, in 2019, like if you say Bean to Bar, then you know a certain segment would probably know what you mean. That that a different skill set and different thing that we we make chocolate from by roasting cocoa beans, and that's one thing. And then a chocolatier would be more like a, a European direction, kind of making truffles, making ganaches, and uh, making stuff out of finished chocolate. And we do both, really. So we're kind of really stuck in the middle. But, um, you know, for us, the most interesting thing, or, or a very interesting thing, is making the chocolate from the bean. So a lot of people might not consider the fact that making truffles and bonbons from bean to bar chocolate is much harder than making it from curvature. Can you explain a little bit about why that is? One of the basic techniques, I guess, of making a truffle or a bonbon or whatever, uh, one of them would be dipping or enrobing. So if you're making very, very small amounts, you would be dipping it with a fork. When you're doing that stuff, you need a very stable product. And that comes from, I'm not going to say strictly industrially processed chocolate, but um, the factory that makes that kind of chocolate needs to have a lot of things under control. 
whereas a bean to bar maker might not care so much about particle size distribution or might not have enough money to buy equipment that can control it. Um, and really their focus is to make a finished bar that tastes good in your mouth, uh, that melts in your mouth nicely, that, that tastes good. They may or may not use cocoa butter, uh, but standardized viscosity isn't really something that is a big focus. When you're building up your new factory now, how is that different mm -hmm. from when you were building up your factory the first time, 16 years oh, ago? Um, well, we, we did it a funny way. Like our, our very first um, idea was, in fact, our mandate, we thought what the mandate was from our landlords was that uh, they were opening a, a, an area that was supposed to be an arts district and they wanted everyone to you know, show what they did. So we, we built the factory with big windows where you could see we had a coating pan and you can see us making all the stuff. Uh, we had our hands like deep in chocolate paste and everything. Um, and this was about 600 square feet, a very tiny space. And so Cynthia designed it with big, big windows. So you can see everything. And that was basically the, the kernel of our idea. So when we went, we got, kind of outgrew that space in a few years, we went to a bigger space. So. Cynthia designed a bigger space with bigger windows and uh, we could see much more of the process and we added some other things. Um, and then when we kind of outgrew that space, we got a, a another store across town and we did the same thing. Cynthia designed another space with big windows. Uh, we kind of divided the processes. So in the second store, we did baking and all the truffles and stuff. And in the first store, we made the chocolate and we made and we did the panning. And then when we outgrew those two spaces, we went to rent uh, an industrial unit, not, not an industrial unit, but an industrial space, uh, you know, with lots of power and stuff. So we kind of set that up uh, and we also bought a big winnower. So we set those two things up. Um, the nature of buying equipment, though, is that um, every like if you buy a big roaster, then you need a big winnower. If you have a big winnower, then you need a big liquor mill and, and on and on and on. So in the end, we kind of, rented another space. It was kind of uh, a patchwork of spaces. So we decided to just try and consolidate everything in this one that we're doing now. So we're going to be making all our chocolate, all our equipment will be in one place. And then the stores will be auxiliary spaces where you can purchase and there'll be nice places to visit and, uh, and where the action is. But uh, the factory is more, more well laid out and uh, the, the process makes sense. Uh, if you were to see it. So what was the rough capacity of that initial chocolate factory that you two built? The first one? Mm-hmm. Um, we were making 45 kilo batches because that was our capacity of our punch. Um, and, you know, it definitely didn't run every night. Uh, you know, we were still trying to figure things out. And, you know, even if we ordered one pallet of cocoa, would fill our whole store. We'd have to like move it around five times every day just to, to get around. So it, it, it didn't really make sense. Like a chocolate factory isn't done like that. This was more like a retail chocolate store with uh, with kind of a chocolate factory shoved in there. Um, so it it just like each time we expanded, we tried to make it a little bit smarter. Uh, but at the same time, if you're like if someone gave you a couple of million dollars and told told you to build a chocolate factory, you wouldn't do it the way we did it. You would uh, you would do it differently. You would you would set it up in kind of a logical fashion, which is 
finally how we what we did like eventually it just took us the long way around our our whole business model is kind of based on a retail and a connection to customers i think that worked well for us and i think that connects us pretty well i i, I think when people come into our store they see a lot of different products made with chocolate and there's a lot of different directions that will draw them and captivate them with what we do but there's very like some hardcore chocolate people who will only come in and and if there's no they'll have an origin that they love like madagascar if we don't have any madagascar they they don't get anything else they just they just leave so if you were to build out a beginner's chocolate factory today would yeah. it have to also be at the same capacity of 45 kilos per batch or could you go any smaller when we started there was no small equipment what we were buying, like the equipment we would buy would be like the lab size equipment of big companies. Now you can buy like a Premier Grinder that does 400 grams or something. I'm just wondering, do you identify as a craft chocolate maker as most people have these days? Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, when we, when I first, when we first started trying to purchase beans, or we called out the bean broker, I forget which one it was. And I said, you know, we want, we just want to buy one bag two bags and they kind of laughed and uh he told like he said no one ever orders two bags of cocoa um he said there's only i only have 11 customers like there's only 11 companies in all of north america that buy cocoa beans and that was including mars hershey's m&ms and all them so just to give you an idea like making chocolate was a completely industrial process at that time and um Scharfenberger was really groundbreaking mock in um, Grenada. Even to tell you the truth, the internet was still a bit primitive at the time. You search for um, chocolate makers and what you would get was the Grenada Chocolate Company. So we were looking at their pictures, like they had an old Melanger and a McIntyre. Like that's the inspiration that we got. And we thought if they can do it, we can do it. So um, we've come a long way. What does it mean to you to have that identifier as a craft chocolate maker? It's um, I think it's it's one more craft. I mean, uh, it's um, generally you know in the last ten years or twenty ten or twenty years, everyone seems to be more and more interested in making stuff with their hands, and um, and we're just like one more of that, I guess. Um, there's only so much industrialized products you can. Uh, consume before you realize like there's got to be something more and making it makes Cynthia and I very happy like Cynthia digs really deep into each origin and she's an artist and she she does all the art for our bar covers and she she digs really deep and gets to the essence of each origin to paint a picture of that origin to go along with the you know the flavors in the bar it's an amazing process to to make a physical product and to present it in a package that is basically completely the construction of both of us. If that's not craft, then what is, right? It's just people making stuff. What makes it difficult to be a craft chocolate maker compared to a mass market chocolate maker? Okay, I'll give you an example of in an industrial factory might have their huge machines, like six or three or six ton conches and huge grinders and everything, and, and they make chocolate in that every day. If they want to Try let's say try a new origin. 
they have a lab somewhere in the basement or on the second floor or whatever where they can make a small batch it but for them a small batch might be 50 or 100 kilos so they and they have duplicated their machines basically on a small scale and they can make a new batch and, and they figure out all the roast profiles and all the conching times and everything and when they figured it out they scale it up to the big machine with craft makers we don't have the luxury of of that uh, basically every batch you make is an experiment with sometimes very pricey ingredients so depending on your equipment if you want to make another batch of some origin uh, and you want to try out a new roast profile the only way you're really going to understand how it how it's going to come out is to make a batch and your batch might be let's say 100 kilos uh, 100 kilos like more than a bag of cocoa it's probably like thousand or two thousand dollars worth of ingredients but let's say uh, you know your roast profile wasn't <laughs> didn't really do what it was supposed to do it didn't showcase you know what you wanted to do or, or for whatever reason this batch doesn't turn out for a, a small craft maker that would be a big loss and that's the kind of risky part of the business that people don't understand it, it's still kind of the wild west for cocoa and chocolate craft making and uh, it's not that easy experimenting and stuff and that's when you have to say when you find a good chocolate bar you you should really appreciate it <laughs> And uh, when you look at the price sometimes, um, you know, $10, $15, $20 bar, it, it would have seemed ridiculous uh, 20 years ago. But um, when you factor in all the, the cost and everything of this product getting shipped and, and you making this stuff and putting in your time and experimenting this way, uh, it's completely justified, I think. The big thing is you don't have to eat a lot of this chocolate. Like, this is very potent stuff. So even at 70%, um, small piece goes a long way and if you can enjoy that flavor journey then what what better on the planet is there <laughs> in terms of like going through and making a chocolate bar if you were to get an origin that unknowingly that would be yeah. destined to become a chocolate bar in your factory what would the process mm -hmm. be like of testing the cacao and the chocolate and becoming a chocolate bar, like making the art, because you can't outsource all of that stuff. You don't have a whole department dedicated to all of that. What What is the no. process like of creating a new chocolate bar for Soma? Well, I mean, we do a lot of different things. We don't just do single origin, but if you're talking about like, let's say a single origin, 70%, uh, a new origin, you know, you get your samples from, Everyone, everyone sends you samples, right? So uh, you might hear about some origin from a certain country that you want, that you're interested in, and uh, or you get a phone call saying like, "I got this stuff, you want to try it?" And uh, so you'll you'll get the sample, you'll do different tests on it. Some people like to taste it raw. We don't usually taste it raw. For us, like chocolate is always going to be roasted, so we give it uh, usually two different roast profiles, roasts. We'll winnow them, we'll grind the nibs in the coffee grinder, and you'll see if there's any flavors in there that you like at each different roast. So one would be a very basic roast, low, you know, relatively low temperature, low time. And then the other one would be a more full roast. Uh, that's the way we do it. And not everyone does it that way, but we do it that way. And, uh, you know, you'll, if you don't taste anything interesting in either of those, not much is going to happen. But if you do taste something interesting, you kind of decide on what kind of roast you have. You can always mess around 
a little bit, but really like uh, the idea of all these high, um, special origins is that you try not to mess around with the flavor too much and you're trying to preserve kind of what's there. Um, the frustrating thing is sometimes you'll taste amazing flavors at, you know, when you've roasted at the nib stage, at the liquor stage, and some of them don't make it through to the end. So, you know, you try and figure ways to kind of preserve some of that. The other frustrating thing is that it really does need a little bit of aging. So what you finished making that day, uh, whether it tastes good or bad, it's not going to taste the same in a month. A lot of times we'll make chocolate and we're like, oh yeah, okay, that's pretty good, I guess. And we put it on the shelf and then two months later, like you taste it and it's wow, that's amazing. I can't believe that came out of that. So it's kind of an interesting um, process because you have a certain amount of control, but you also have mysteries, <laughs> mysterious um, points of, of change. And so the people that you're buying this cacao from, would they usually, after two months or plus whatever time it took for you to actually decide and make that mm -hmm. chocolate, would they usually still have cacao from the same exact harvest? Yeah, good question. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. <laughs> yeah, there's certain things you'll know if it's, um, I mean, really, it, a lot of it doesn't move that quickly, but cert certain crops do. And, and if you know, just based on, uh, let's say, scarcity or um, the type of origin that you had experience with before that's kind of available again, then you sometimes you kind of jump on it. And um, uh, usually we don't buy stuff without sampling it, but sometimes we have. and. Um, Sometimes, you know, it's a relationship of who's selling it to you. Sometimes it's the farmer direct, and that's, that's easier because there's no one trying to mess around. Uh, but generally speaking, like, we, we work with trustworthy people, and everyone's uh, on the up and up. We haven't had to really destroy too much, but uh, we have. But it's a good community of people all the way down the line, so we're lucky that way, I guess. I think you are. I think this is a very unique industry. It is. Just to ask about single origin, because I think it's the most common and the most yeah. relatable. And actually, yeah. I used to buy your bars a lot from uh, Cocova, which is now the chocolate house. There was always a really huge variation in prices, because you had the little 20-gram bars, and then you had the bigger regular-sized bars, but you would have, like, the porcelana would be, like, $18. What? Yeah. Well, how do you determine the prices? For those different bars. Uh, well, I mean, it it really is sometimes uh, the scarcity of a product. Like in the porcelana, you know, the the lot and batch that we got, we don't have much of it. So when it's gone, it's going to be gone. But other than that, the price of the cocoa beans obviously is the biggest thing, and that's the only really big thing that changes. The the shipping too, and the price of beans can vary quite a bit. You know, it's a pretty simple formula. Uh, scarcity breeds higher prices. <laughs> but when I think of a mass market chocolate maker, they're generally buying ingredients which fit their price margin and the price of their bars so that they can continue with the, their consistent price, product, and profit. But craft chocolate makers at least have the, the chance to change the final price of their product. So generally, mm -hmm. What portion of that final price goes towards farmers, goes towards you all and your overhead? Oh, it all gets sliced up. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, we have a little bit of a different model because we have store, retail stores and most of the chocolate we make gets sold in the retail store. So we have our, our own distribution. 
we're lucky in that we can control that part of, of the process. Everything's different because we buy, sometimes we'll buy direct from a farmer. Uh, sometimes we'll go through a, a middle person. Sometimes we're buying from lots that are in warehouses in the US or Europe. It all kind of trickles down to which origin, like each one you could get a little bit more transparent with, I guess. Uncommon if you buy it from them or from um, Meridian, they're extremely transparent. You can just look on their website, see what, how much like a bag of cocoa beans is. So it's pretty easy to do the math and see where it's all going. But uh, there's been times when we've purchased some origins that have been multiple times the market price. And those ones, you know, you, you want to do them because uh, nothing makes us happier than making really great chocolate. And um, in the end, you have to charge a little bit more for them. So is there anything mm-hmm. else that you'd like to share about the hidden costs? Well, um, it is extremely equipment intensive. And uh, at, at a certain scale, you can't just do it with cheap equipment. Like at a certain point, you have to start to invest in like new equipment, in food safety. There's um, the cost of, of just of producing. When you add it all up, I'm pretty sure not a lot of chocolate makers are making exorbitant profits. At the end of the year, if you've done a year of sales and you have a little bit left over in the bank, then that's probably pretty typical. And then hopefully you know, people will appreciate it. And, uh, and that's all we can do. Are you saying people don't get into chocolate making to get rich? <laughs> Yeah, it's, well, obviously not, but there's a space in there. Like when you have, um, you know, huge industrial chocolate production and then there's space in there for, for us to work where we can be a little bit more innovative and make more interesting products and capture a little bit of the market on the bottom end. Even though like unimaginable amounts of money are spent on those grocery store chocolate bars, the ones that are 99 cents or whatever that have pretty minimal amounts of cocoa liquor. Uh, our thing is pretty different, doing more interesting stuff. And we can exist like in that space between the industrial guys and, and the bottom and make interesting products and keep going. Hopefully we all keep going at least. 